0: Hello and welcome to minton Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in partially remotely from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you interesting guests, publications and experts to test frontier ideas. Today, we're talking to the DeFi expert... Luca Constantino from Oasis Labs on DeFi and data markets, alongside Distinguished Professor Jason Potts and Associate Professor Chris Berg from the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So start by kind of framing some context for us, if you would, about Oasis Lab and the kind of founder story out of Berkeley University.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So I... I may start from my background because um, it helps frame how I got to Berkeley and how I got to um, Oasis Labs. Like it, it's a it's it's a path more than a one-off event. Um, so that goes back to 2013 when I was an intern uh, in in a primary uh, payments company and. I started um, playing with Bitcoin a little bit because I opened a newspaper um, online, like an online magazine, and, and I found out about Bitcoin. I said, "Let me let me read about this." Found it interesting. Um, it was a three hundred dollars uh, back back then, and it made the news because really, um, it hit like three hundred dollars, which which was a massive milestone at, at that time. Um, and I went to my um, like VPs and asked them, mage like shall I?" Shall I research about this a little bit? Shall I shall I inform the team about this new thing so that they know? And they say, like, like, no, not at all. We don't know what this is, just focus on, on, on your slides. I say, okay, cool. Um, and, and given that these people had like years of experience in, in payments, I said they, they may have seen like more and more cycles um um in, in innovation in payments, so they must know. So I really like uh, took their words for granted and didn't invest any any time in it. Um, the only thing that I've done is like I bought a couple of Bitcoin just to start playing with it and familiarize with the experience. And it felt really good to have ownership of this money. Um, I, I didn't um, keep keep this Bitcoin and, um, since then simply because in, in my family, I'm Italian, but in my family, whenever you make more than 0.1 return on your money, um, they they probably think uh, if you make more than that like the, your parents tell you it's probably a scam you should be aware and and, and you need, and you need um to, to sell as quick as possible so that's what i did um so um, flash forward to a couple of um, iterations of bitcoin later and and finding myself um, studying for my MBA at, at UC Berkeley I also get in touch with the community uh, of blockchain at berkeley which i'd say was one of the probably like first and biggest communities in blockchain in the world. Um, And so that gave me an opportunity to do essentially a couple of things that I didn't do before. The first one was um, spending more time reading the white papers and the technical aspects of of blockchain. Clearly, Ethereum was probably the first uh, white paper after Bitcoin that I I read. And then uh, I experienced this craziness of the ICO, which also means that um, I I had the opportunity to read more and more white papers uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and so I found myself, like, instead of following MBA classes, just pretending that I was actually um, following what the professor w- was saying, but but really, like, reading uh, white papers. Um, it was a very fun experience. But but the, the important moment was when um, I had this idea, um, like, this idea came to mind, which was coming from my previous experience working in large enterprises. Um, I, I previously worked at American Express, Procter & Gamble, and, and Google. And I always experienced this world where, um, users take certain actions, either online or or uh, in whatever pieces the company is in, um, and then an employee there has to access this data to to do something, right? Um, and I'd say while the data is treated very uh, carefully inside these organizations, at the same time, uh, there is this weird trade-off between securing and using the data, which is you as an employee need access to the data. And so the first thing you do on your first day um, is that you? You send a ton of requests to someone based in someone else's in in, sorry, in some other locations um, to get access to these tables uh, because you want to do your job, and this person in w- without knowing anything um, about you needs to approve decline um, your your request based maybe on a sentence right, which is like I need the data to do this sales analysis right, um, and I thought that was very inefficient because I say like why companies spend all this money to secure the data if then the first employee that, that joins the company, maybe as an intern or whatever, has access to all these tables. That makes no sense to me, right? If I had malicious intentions, I could join the company, and then get the data, and then leave the company three months later. That made no sense to me. Um, and so what when, when, when I was reading blockchain, and I was reading about this ability of programming information and establishing policies uh, of, of some kind via smart contracts, um, I had this one moment where I said, maybe I can solve this problem actually using blockchain. And so I can think of this situation where, um, where a black box can be put in between two entities that need to share information, not just uh, employees uh, of the same company, but also company to company or maybe different organizations of the same company. So I said, if I create this black box and I put it in between these sort of data... Sharing um, entities, maybe uh, I can solve a big problem, right? And so while the data stays in this black box and lives there, the computation actually goes to the data rather than the data goes to the computation. If that, if that makes sense. And that's sort of the very high level and and not fully formed idea that I that I had, but I had like a couple of very use cases in mind, right? Um, one example is when the customer links the credit card um, on the Amazon website, let's say the American Express card on the Amazon website, there could be a partnership between American Express and Amazon because it's in, in everyone's interest that you get better product recommendation based on your previous purchases. It's in Amazon's uh, interest, it's in American Express' interest, and, and it's in uh, the user interest to do that. But this thing doesn't really happen because 50 years ago or 30 years ago or 10 years ago, you signed this um, policy at American Express that says your data is never going to be transferred um, somewhere else. And and this sort of ca- causes this weird um, uh, tension point that can be solved by this technology. So I, I start Googling like privacy preserving experts um, at, at uh, and maybe because I was at Berkeley, the first result that I get was Professor Donsong, who was working on something extremely similar, but I didn't know when I reach out to her. I asked her, like, hey, can you help me develop this? And she responded, look at what we just released. Uh, and they, like, three days before, they released this white paper, uh, which was the very first implementation of what then became Oasis Labs. Uh, so, like, joining forces seemed very obvious. Um, and, and from there, like, um, it has been more of a traditional um, company building exercise. So, I've been the first employee there after the very um, uh, initial funding um, engineering team and I've uh, been there since. So we, we uh, launched this decentralized network um, and then um, uh, are also building this abstraction for enterprises.
0: Did you finish your MBA?
1: You no, know, I did because um, um, I, I mean I, I, I managed to work um, almost full time in all my second year. And I did that by taking like weekend classes, even classes or, or things like that. Uh, it wasn't remote at that time, so I had to show up. Um, but
0: Nice. I think we have a bunch of questions based on what you've said already. Jason?
2: Yeah, Luka, that was fascinating. Um, for us, Blockchain at Berkeley was also actually one of the foundations for the, the um, development of the Blockchain Innovation Hub. We were We were there, I think, in 2017. And it was just an incredible experience to see just the energy of what was going on. I think we saw Algorand launch live on stage at at that time. Um, What I'm fascinated by in terms of your sort of insight into the business opportunity here was that you saw it initially as solving a privacy problem of sort of B2B employee to employee inside organizations, Um, which is a a huge, obvious global, just hard problem um, that's everywhere. Did you also see it as from the beginning as an opportunity for machine um, that the, the counterparty could be a machine accessing this data for you know for you know, um, machine learning algorithms or um, or sort of seeing this as the, the beginning of data markets like was the whole sort of vision there right at the beginning or were you just seeing it very much as a as a solving the privacy problem the, the, the security and privacy problem of data.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. If you if you think about the example I I referenced before, the one about two companies um, sharing data, really what that was was purely machine learning based, because you need to build your machine learning recommendation model um, to, to to suggest the final customer what products um, he or she may be interested in. Um, so in fact, I thought. Much less about an internal policy manager tool and much more about this black box that could return this uh, output of a certain machine learning model. Because essentially, the assumption was uh, when you run your machine learning model, you really don't care about the um, underlying data. Uh, clearly, you needed to, like, you need to, like, uh, Ensure the data integrity, the quality. You need to like pre-process the data. All these things like are things that you need to do. But assuming that this is not a concern in, in a slightly idealistic world, you you don't really care about owning the data. You only care about running a model and taking the parameters. Now there are multiple ways to do it. There's like federated federated learning, like solve this problem like a little bit. But again. Uh, Here, the the point is not training model in many different places, but having the data live in one place, have the model run inside this data, and then, or inside this data black box, and then uh, the model and the parameters uh, leave the the black box while the data stays there. Um, And there's a little bit more than this in in the architecture of the OASIS network. We We can talk about it, but I think this is an analogy that despite containing a few errors and a few um, limitations um, s- still conveys the message uh,
3: So Luca I mean from your from your perspective what is the what is the size of this problem um, uh, so you, you've spelt out a really what I think is a very compelling particular use in that environment but how do you see the evolution of the of the da- the large-scale data privacy challenge? Uh, as it stands, has it changed since you began this journey? Where do you see it heading? And and so how do you see Oasis fitting into into that changing market?
1: Um, Yeah, this is a very good question. And maybe a good way to answer this is thinking of where we are today, then scaling it up to what the vision looks like. And then imagining what are the steps to sort of bridge the gap between today and and the future. So right now we we if you observe the data market in general, right? Which I'm not even sure it could be called the market because data owners, which should be consumers, don't really have a way to do anything with their own data, right? Mm. But let's go to the data market for a second. So. There is an immense amount of data that is produced every day. Um, And and users are the main data producers um, of of this immense, like um, um, of of this incredible resource that is not yet a factor of production, but should be, right? Um, The the problem um, in when you observe products, the problem that is generated is that people who build product prioritized by the most urgent needs um, that cons- consumers and users have. Um, and consequently, they, they, the way of operating is they observe the market, they observe the user behavior, and they take decisions based on that. But what happens at the same time is that um, given that there is no product that offers people the ability to own their own data, uh, also, if you observe what happens, you observe that people don't care about owning their data, right? It's a very straightforward conclusion, but uh, it's not that obvious until you think about it. And people so don't care do, about
3: owning their data because they've got no way to own their data, basically.
1: That's right. Yeah. And if you look at history, right? Um, and you look at 3,000 years of history um, and, and you put privacy in, in in context, right? What you notice is um, whenever there was a trade-off between uh, convenience and, and privacy, or like accessibility of a service and privacy, people prefer accessibility and sacrifice privacy. But whenever a privacy-preserving option came up, they always defaulted to the second one, to the privacy one. And this goes back to um, and really um, very broad topics, such as having sex in public rather than inside your own house before uh, you have walls to something a little bit more recent, which is um, having your uh, telephone in, in, a, in a big room with a bunch of other people that were necessarily listening to what you were saying, um, to switch into headphones uh, right after they came up, right, as a need to protect you from an environment.
3: Yeah, the, the, way I've, the way I've always thought about it in that context, and I've done a fair bit of work on the history of privacy, is the privacy um, is always a bolt-on after the initial innovation so if you think about the telephone you know, it, it, privacy becomes a bolt-on after we have party lines because the early adopters we, we, it, it's it's hard to build in those privacy technologies on on the face of it but but with the internet we have we're sort of lagging well behind that privacy adoption curve um and i think uh, technologies like oasis um it, it, even technologies just uh, like Zcash, for example, start building back in the privacy that, in an ideal world, would have been put in the internet on day one, but um, uh, but over time the demand for that has
1: returned and the technology has has evolved. That's right, and in fact now you're seeing some examples of, of what you're saying, right? Um, whenever, like good examples could be uh, messaging platforms. And you're seeing some people deviating uh, to a more privacy-preserving product. Uh, you're you're seeing the same um, with maybe some first examples of very sensitive data, such as genomics. I'm happy to talk about a use case we are supporting in that space. Um, but you're not going to see it on on you're not going to see it in places where the incentives are not aligned, right? Credit cards, like what do you want? <laughs> do you want me to? move around with like cash instead of using credit cards, not to give data away, or you want me not to be on Facebook when 99% of my friends are on Facebook and, and the social life happens there, that's not gonna happen in, in like overnight. So the incentives need to be restructured. And I'm happy to talk about it, um, about the way we see it at Oasis.
0: Labs. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting to get into use cases. Before we, we dive a little bit deeper, you guys did a token launch for the Rose token on the Oasis protocol. What was that process for you, and what is the function of the token in relation to, to privacy and data that we've spoken about?
1: Yeah, so the architecture of the Oasis network... or actually, let me, let me, let me step back and, and tell you why Oasis exists. I think it's uh, something we haven't covered, right? Um, so when, when the project of Oasis like, was um, designed, uh, basically, there was only Ethereum. Um, as, as a network um, and and maybe a few others but mainly Ethereum and, and the biggest problem that was clear back then was that putting everything pri- uh, publicly on the blockchain wouldn't really optimize for adoption in the real world because um, having all the information public significantly limits what people and companies can actually do um, and, and not because they want to hide information, this means that they are doing something illegal, right? It simply means that they need to protect something that is sensitive or something that cannot be revealed to the market or something that needs to stay confidential within the walls of that transaction or a a commercial agreement. And the second problem that was very clear back in time was the same that is uh, um, still here today, which is the low scalability uh, that has evolved in different ways, right? But but still is a concern um, for blockchain space. And so we, we we thought of how do, how can we solve this this problem in a way that uh, it's it's usable by the real world, right? In in production, let's say that that's that's probably a better terminology. And so we thought of this architecture that could ensure scalability um, and privacy, but at the same time support um, the complexity of the transaction. You know, a lot of projects are talking about TPS transaction per second as a one metric. We think it's an imperfect metric because it doesn't capture what transaction we're talking about, right? Is it me sending money to you or is like a deep learning model uh, running uh, in a decentralized fashion, right? It, those are very different transactions. So um, in order to solve these goals, we decided that the market was proposing these secure enclaves, this like black box uh, powered by Intel called Intel SGX which is this piece of hardware that runs already on, on some devices, such as the iPhone or the MacBook, et cetera, okay. and it allows to um, uh, to do what I, would, what I was describing before, which is putting the uh, data in this confined environment where the model can work, and if, and if there's any attempt to break that, uh, that zone, the system breaks. The problem, the problem without decentralization is that you would rely on that one piece of hardware and given that it's not open source, you don't really know what's in there, right? So you don't really know if it's cheating on you, if it's if it's doing something that it shouldn't be doing. You, you don't have visibility of that. But what happens with blockchain and, and with the decentralization level is that you don't have to rely on the hardware because you will have independent nodes that will validate that computation for you. And if they agree on a certain criteria, then it means that that computation is actually performed correctly. Um, so we we really enable this architecture that is both scalable and private by creating this separation of the main layers of blockchain, which are uh, consensus and compute and compute layer. At the compute layer, we enable this um, uh, the execution of parallel runtimes, which we call paratimes, which are sort of independent blockchains that can run again independently, but they are coordinated um, by this consensus layer. And the consensus layer is a network of independently selected nodes. Um, They are uh, 80 plus. Uh, We are scaling up to 200. Um, They uh, run the validator role uh, on on behalf of the Oasis network, and they're compensated by transaction fees. And so, this is the primary answer to to your question, which is why do you need rows? In first principle, you need rows to, and rows is is the name of, of the token because it's an ancient symbol of privacy, but uh, um, Rose is this uh, token that is used to uh, access the consensus layer. We're now releasing an upgrade that allows the uh, token to enter the the, uh, paradigm, and so it will be used inside applications that are built on top of these paradigms. And for application, you can think of um, um, any type of use case, but we have some angle specific on, on DeFi uh, and this idea of like these data markets that we referenced before.
3: I'm, I'm right in saying it's a Tendermint consensus, so it, it, will it be integrated
1: with the rest of the Cosmos sort of ecosystem in that sense? So we use an implementation of the Tendermint consensus, but for now we are uh, not building on top of the Cosmos SDK. Uh, we are uh, f- starting to focus on bridging our network with Ethereum, um, so we, we are bridging there. But we are discussing supporting uh, these other implementations. Right now, the closest we are doing is uh, building a Cosmos equivalent uh, internal implementation of that SDK um, to have our paradigms talk to each other as if they were one big network, which which indeed they are. But the goal is uh, enabling developers not to take the decision of which paradigm they want to build on uh, early on. Which is a problem that a lot of blockchains have, no matter what architecture they have, because it's always a trade-off between like supporting the Ethereum virtual machine, which is adopted but inefficient, or maybe switching to something a little bit more uh, flexible, such as um, um, the WebAssembly framework, that may enable developers to be a little bit more flexible, but clearly that requires a little bit more effort to uh, to learn and to ramp up. And so, and so, you know, like you wanna you wanna break this barrier. And, and make developers uh, at ease when they build an application that maybe uses uh, some some contracts on the Ethereum virtual machine, but also some other contracts um, on another on another development framework. So
3: it would be interesting to talk about some of these use cases, and you've you've suggested one that is um, quite of interest to us because we've been thinking a lot about the use of blockchain for healthcare, particularly managing data markets in healthcare. And, and you mentioned you're um, supporting a genomics project. It'd be really interesting to hear about that and what you see that use case of benefits is.
2: Can I just ask a, just a, a question just to follow up on that um, around how you see the difference between data markets for healthcare, like me selling my health data or, um, versus um, donating it or pooling it or just creating a sort of scientific commons for data, or just, just whether you see those as contradictory approaches um, in this, in this space, but I think we're seeing a lot of very different attitudes towards property rights in data, um, depend, depending upon the use cases. So transactions data, I'll sell you mine, but health data, there is a sense in which you're contributing data for the common good, um, you know, for scientific advances to be used. So are you seeing that distinction between different architectures or property rights or, or institutions for governing the data? in relation to the different use cases that are, that are opening up
1: yeah both are um very interesting points and, and i think they're very close to the way we think about data um at oasis but i'd say we i'd say we approach the problem from a slightly different uh, point of view that then ends up in in serving the two use cases that you, that you just described so the way we see it is not really who pays for the data or what is the business model around data, but who has ownership of the data and control of the data. Because if you solve that problem, then solving the problem of whether companies should pay or not to access this data becomes much easier, right? Um, and I'd say it becomes a choice that the application can take later and, and can also switch over time. So the way we see it is, Data right now, like think about the default, right? The default is there is data that is produced and then this data is stored in a database, right? Or in a place that contains this data. What's the problem? The problem is that who owns this database? Um, um, the, generally, the companies. And in those companies, you are a row in a data set or at least in, in structured data, um, in structured databases. but. So you are uh, a a row in a data set or maybe like uh, many rows in many databases. Um, So this causes two problems. One, all your data is not in one place. So even if you request to delete the data, that's also complicated because they need to go and, and match these primary keys that live in multiple places. So the best you can hope for is that they delete your email or some very sensitive information because it's easy to spot. But everything you actually produce online May actually still be with the company, even when you ask them to delete the company to delete the data. Think of a different approach, which is the way we think about it. We created these things called like um, capsules, which are these entities that um, capture the data once the data is produced and store the data in a cap in, in this place that belongs to the user, not to the company. So we invert the model. And what happens is that the company. Will get access to that data if the user wants, which may be specified within the consent of, of the registration to that application. Right. So you can still read-imagine a scenario where you register the same way you do now, but within that process, you give consent to that company to use your data. But the data doesn't go in their database, it goes in your capsule. Um why this is important? Because Related to the privacy aspect that I mentioned before, um, even when data is accessed, the data is not revealed or transferred to the company, which is the biggest problem that every known privacy preserving network or cloud has is that if someone can see your data, that means that you're transferring ownership uh, of the data because you need to trust their behavior. And you, you don't have to trust the behavior now, but you have to trust this behavior over many years. Um, which explains really well why the very first use cases that we're seeing are around the most sensitive data, which is DNA data, because the data produced today is is the same data that is going to be there like 50 years from now. And people cannot take choices now based on what's happening in 50 years or in 10 years. Um, So before jumping into the uh, use case of genomics, um, let's stay one second on the capsule, right? So the capsule keeps your data, you give access, and then all you need to do now is uh, defining why users should give you access to that data. So now all of a sudden, from a technology problem, it became um, an incentive problem. And if you switch the incentive scheme or the incentive structure, what now happens is that companies um, will not keep behaving the same way they're behaving now, which is when they're small, they do whatever they can to attract users and to collaborate with users because they are small, they are collaborative, they're the best customer support and all these things. And then once they grow, the marginal importance of that user, of the nth user, is is lower and lower and lower. And so they can switch towards a more exploitative attitude to, to their users. But if they still have to give their users a reason to access their data. They cannot afford to be like uh, exploitative, right? They need to be collaborative with, the, with with the users. And then, like up to this point, if if it's clear up to this point, then we can discuss what could be the right incentive. And back to your question, it could be like examples where money is the way to settle um, set this transaction, or maybe it could be like supporting causes, and that would be similar to. The real world like why do people do something um, maybe that's a field that you know much better than i do but this is this could be like a question that um that should be answered to, to answer transfer stage so i pause it here uh, i i curious to see if there are questions if not i'll jump into the uh, uh, dna uh, genomics example yeah.
0: so on that point in the capsule model that you've described users are creating the data that they own but how does this marketplace work when a third party wanna to, wants to create data on users still? Because at the moment, the kind of data economy and, and privacy in that respect is that the person that creates the data, no matter who they are, owns it.
1: And when you say create the data, um, you mean the data is created from the actions of the users? Or you mean that um, if Google Maps creates data, the data belongs to Google?
0: So if I have a website and you visit it, I create the data about your behavior, but I collect that data on you and I store it and it's mine to benef- benefit from.
1: I see. Okay, so this is this is um, a, a an interesting question because There are multiple forces that are uh, playing here, right? And the way we see it is is this one. Um, There is the technology force, which is enabling a new model of collaboration that didn't really exist before. The second one is the incentives to switch to this user based um, or user owned uh, web, right? Which is mainly closer to blockchain. And the third one is the competitive advantage that companies plan to have by offering functionalities that are uh, appealing to their users. And the first and biggest example that you're seeing in the market now is probably Apple. And Apple is doing a ton to protect the user's data, also because they're incentivized to do it because they make competitor's life a little harder. Um, but, uh, but, but people are becoming aware of uh, what what this means now, right? Um, and when data privacy is granted, it's hard to go back because it's like someone puts a dress on you and then all of a sudden removes it and, and you feel like awkward, right? You feel that you need that dress, uh, which is also what history sort of teaches. Um, so what we are seeing is that more and more startups and larger players are interested in giving users some level of, of control over over their data. Even if you think about a very famous case in the US, Plaid, um, they uh, are a fintech player that connects a fintech app to, to the bank and allows a user to um, extract some information from the bank so that the app can give like better recommendation, can see if you're paying hidden fees, and or if you can use another credit card, and, and a bunch of other use cases. So they collect a ton of data in the process. And last year or two years ago, they released this a dashboard that, that shows you how your data is used, so you can put your primary key. You go there and you see these are the applications that have access to your data. So all of these are steps forward. Are not the definitive solution, but they're step forwards. And so we think that while the mar- by the time the market realizes that they want more and more control, uh, also new application will uh, will be in the market. And so, bigger players will be at risk of losing a significant part of the user base if they don't catch up with that information. Like Google now is removing cookies; it's enabling this like confidential compute system uh, via this private implementation of, of TensorFlow. Like you're seeing a ton of movement um, under the hood. It's a little bit hidden because it's like not a consumer-facing product. Uh, uh, maybe the case of Apple, it is, but you're seeing that happening. So the, what we expect is that more and more companies will, will come with the desire of putting customers in control of their data as a strategy to retain or acquire new customers. And we want to make the trade-off of doing so for companies very small, because of what we said at the very beginning, which is companies may not necessarily want the data, but they want what they can do with the data. And if they, if they can do the same thing, while also reducing their liability, reducing the risks of data breaches, and all these things. That could be an incentive model that works for everyone. What do you see as the
2: the role of government in this? Because we've got a situation where what you've just described was the market responding to consumers' desire for privacy. You know, Apple is is a great example of that. Um, In the EU, EU, you've got the sort of GDPR regulation that's driving a lot of this sort of government deciding this is the level of privacy around data that everyone, all our citizens must have, and companies needing to comply with that. What's your view on, and then China's a whole different story again around that, like what's your view on whether government is leading or following or an essential player in this or just fundamentally getting in the way of, of, of market responses or just... How do you view this, this um, yeah, this this regulatory
1: question? Well, I'd say I'd say here the European regulators have probably been the strongest force in making this very annoying thing called GDPR uh, public and 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 interesting to everyone, right? Um, I remember that newsletter or sorry not newsletter that email push that every company had to do in Europe uh was really uh, like as annoying as effective to make everyone aware that their data was sort of used in in a in a in a weird way right so i think the regulator has an immense uh, power um and and when we talk to american companies who you know like They're not necessarily, they're not historically uh, good at protecting uh, users' data, but there is such a great awareness that something is going to change in the next future that really everyone is receptive and and looking at solutions in the market to uh, offer something to their consumers. And I guess the intersection point is while companies put, so companies have an opportunity to put users in control by also reducing their liability, their exposure to data breaches and, and any other like data related problems, again, the only thing that needs to be done there is that all of this process needs to happen without significant problems uh, or significant, lo- significant loss of performance for, for these companies. And I think that's very doable because if you take what you can do with any open data set that you may manage, you remove what the government said you cannot do. You remove what the government in multiple geographies are saying you cannot do. You already go at a you already at a stage that is extremely close to what you can do with like privacy-preserving computation, and so the only missing step is changing this incentive model. Um, so, so yeah, um, this is this is to me is a fascinating argument. As a company, we cannot rely too much on the government because you know we don't know when this is going to happen, to what intensity, with what intensity. So we need to find a story that is convincing for enterprises and users at the same time now. That's what we're trying to do. Um, But thank God, there are, uh, it seems that the timing is really good because, um, again, like uh, the the last five years, I've probably made it clear to everyone the importance of data. Maybe like the Cambridge Analytica was probably the starting point of how a super simple and kind of um, yeah, like like a super simple like collaboration model between two companies, ten years before can result in like a, like a massive effect ten years later. Uh, that was totally. Unexpected. And
0: you're talking about the Cambridge Analytica, fa- Facebook scandal um, there for reference, Chris.
3: Yeah. Do Do you see risks though? In so we've got a um, so the GDPR was really the first major semi-global piece of regulation to cover off um the privacy and one of the arguments about the gdpr is that it locks in different models or different ideas of data ownership that aren't necessarily um the right ones regardless of where you stand on the privacy debate um uh both certainly you know free marketeers and um, progressives uh don't really think that the gdpr captures the ideal privacy do you sort of see a challenge then, um, or or do you see any risk that government, um, may intervene in a way that distorts that otherwise market driven evolution of the ideas about privacy, um, or, or, is it, is it all, all to the better?
1: Well, we are, as a, as a company, we're not, let's say regulation experts. Um, so it's hard for me to, to answer this question. One thing I noticed here is that, um, GDPR limits the, this a little bit. Limits the innovation startups can can do. That's the one thing I've noticed, mm-hmm. because GDPR starts from from understanding start from the very first user that a startup deals with, and so a startup doesn't really uh, innovate well without experimenting and testing. Um, so maybe this makes me think that not everything that the government does will possibly work in 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 the like best possible direction, I think it's done with the best intentions, then of course, the effects may be bigger than these.
3: It would be good to, um, we've, we've danced around, it'd be good to hear about the genomics um, uh, thing. And we, it would also be interesting to hear about um, your views on DeFi. But tell, tell us about the genomics progress, the project, because that sounds absolutely fascinating.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so the... Um, the most valuable data we have is arguably the genomics data again because it's very personal, identifiable. It's not really changing over time, and and a ton of information can be extracted from from, from there. And of, and also like more and more, right? If you if you do your test today or ten years from now, the result is going to look like incredibly different. And the risk is that people are not aware of these, and so all these um, genomics companies that we're promoting DNA testing, DNA kits, to know where, where, where your family is from, I think, like communicated the wrong message to people and, and didn't really do a great job at, at teaching people what the implications of, of this test uh, was. This company called Nebula uh, that we're very proudly working with is approaching the problem from the same angle, but uh, also from the um, um, angle of wanting to respect the, the privacy and the future implication of users. And so what they're saying is uh, we give a DNA test, you take it, but the data is yours. And it's not only yours, but it's also private. Um, In the process of registering, you give us consent uh, to use the data for some analysis or whatever we need to deliver the service to you. Maybe if you want, we can share your data with uh, some pharma companies to develop drugs so you can can help someone else. But in, in no case, the data is revealed and transferred because the implications are huge. Um, and this is, a, again, another example of they're basing their own valuable position exactly on this. They're charging users for the service, so everyone is happy uh, to have this transaction. The testing that they're doing are, are great. They're, planned, they're maybe planning to switch the entire offering to this. Right now, it's a separate flow from people who want the extra level of privacy. And it's working really well. We're very happy. That's exactly what we want. It empowers this vision of this responsible data economy. Now, the next step would be, what do people do with the data once they have it? And so why a pharma company should access it uh, if they make money on the final product, why they should not pay the inputs, right? Um, and so what we're thinking is creating these um, protocols for uh, decentralized lending of data. I don't know if you're familiar with the maybe like compound, right, for for money, which is this implementation, this, this uh, lending protocol where borrowers and, and lenders can meet and exchange um, money, I mean, the borrower and the lender, via an interest rate that is automatically calculated by um, the supply and demand, right? Uh, We're thinking of doing the same thing with the data. And so the point is, my data is valuable just because there is someone else in the world who is willing to take it, buy it, use it, or or borrow it. And so the idea is users will be able to go and stake their data uh, someone else will see what data is available, will come and will pay the price that is determined by how much people are willing to uh, to pay and how much like the sellers are ready to uh, or actually the the, uh, the lenders are, are ready to lend. Um, and we envision this being done in a very automatic and programmatic way without the negotiation between the two parties with, without the contracting and without the invoicing uh, piece. All of this will be powered by smart contracts. Uh, and will be incentivized by the real demand for, for this data.
0: Okay, so this is where we we build a world of DeFi and data markets to use to use the words of Chris, uh, where it starts to get interesting. It, it,
3: it's a super, yeah, it's super interesting because um, data markets are something that um, on the uh, when you first hear about them sounds like a, a sort of interesting abstraction. But the idea of having a marketplace of data um, outside specialized data brokers is actually is actually quite novel. Um, uh, and to the extent that you, we're moving away from the sort of uh, sort of dark pools of data or dark markets of data into well, you know, we can have privacy preserving, we can have um, uh, high frequency, um, uh, high liquidity data pools that really anybody can access openly as long as they're um, abiding by the conditions of which that data is sold i I think that's a super interesting thing and it resolves a lot of the problems that we have when we're trying to think about how can we give people more control as you say you know people don't value things that they have no control over if um or, or cannot monetize um, you can't get value out of something if it can't be valued by others. So um, I think it's a super interesting um, idea.
2: There's another interesting aspect to this that sort of going in this direction of creating an asset or a, a market good means that instead of regulating it through, or instead of governing it through regulation, you can govern it through taxation or um, accounting codes. It becomes an asset on the books. And, you know, you can you can create... Hu- you you can affect the incentives to hold it or to share it or to or otherwise by playing with the price of data which is a really interesting new new concept i mean is is this is this how you conceive the world we're entering into it's just a world where um, data becomes a resource this is an idea you talked about earlier but not just a resource but a global resource that's just doubling in size every three months Um, that becomes more and more of an asset for companies and an individual asset for individuals and also for nations, I guess um, to sort of start. I mean, is that how you foresee the world we're entering into, or is? is...
1: Yeah, that, that's that's how I see. I think, I think at the beginning I said that um, data should be a factor of production in, in, in my in my mind because it's really used the same way um, other other uh, elements are used, right, to to produce outputs. Now there is this interesting analogy that has been promoted, I think, um, by the economists back in time, which was data is the new oil. Um, I even think it's better than that because when you have like two bars of oil, when you have like one bar of oil and you add the second one, you have, now you have two. And but when you have one dataset and you and you add another dataset, you don't have two. You have more than that uh, because the more data you intersect, the, the more valuable the data becomes. So it's it's even better than that. Um, whether this should be an asset on the balance sheet, I have mixed feelings because it's kind of like counterintuitive and opposite to what I said before. But at the same time, I think it creates the wrong incentives. And it's sort of like the companies are incentivized to collect more and more data. So there must be something in between um, to, to to do. So I, I see it as an asset, but I'm afraid that giving uh, the power of putting out on the balance sheet will create this weird dynamic, which is, yeah, um, I, I want I want more. But you can make the same argument on much broader topics, like even the GDP doesn't capture innovation well, right? Like so totally too broad. Yeah, well, I, I think the other <laughs> difference
0: between yeah data and data and oil is one is a finite resource and and one is you know kind of infinite. To Jason's point, so when you're incentivizing people to create data because of the ways that they can then you know stake it, as you've pointed out, um, you're kind of just able to create more and more and more. Uh, We've covered uh, a fair bit of ground, and, and it feels like only an introduction uh, to OASIS protocol here. Where can people go to find out more and keep in touch with what, you, what you're up to?
1: Our uh, main channels are uh, Twitter and uh, Telegram. We, we have a few communities there in many different like, languages, and also some of them are also like thematic and um, we also publish regular updates uh, to our community via the newsletter and via the um, uh, medium blog post and uh, generally uh, the website is oasisprotocol.org uh, and that's a great starting point if you want to know more about the enterprise efforts and products uh, oasislabs.com is probably the best place Uh, But again, um, oasisprotocol.org contains everything related to community. Uh, We do uh, regular uh, AMAs uh, that are generally specific around certain topics. Most of them are uh, on Telegram, so people can go and ask questions and and have a chat. Um, We have an ambassador program for maybe students or people who want to be part of and support the network uh, in in a different way. Uh, And then we have a grant uh, program which um, helps smaller projects uh, get off the ground, start playing with the network, like propose applications and start interacting with them uh, without absorbing the, the cost of doing so. Uh, and this again on the website, but also personally I'm very able to um, take like calls or conversations or messages. So uh, and I'm very open uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter and, and all this uh, modern, modern media communication channel so yeah we 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 love when when people give us feedback ideas or any type of uh, input from the outside is really great
0: and I should add that you have quite a a broad universities program as well of uh, as in terms of a disclaimer we're actually a participant as a validator node in in the network although I think we're currently outside the active validator set Uh, final thoughts Chris or Jason before I say our farewells
3: no, this is this is super interesting. Um, I think the it's an understated topic in the blockchain space, um, but it's obviously really fundamental to so many of our conversations that we're having about, you know, social media about um, our interactions um, with with global capitalism. I, th- I think it's awesome work, and um, I'm really keen to keep following your project.
2: Yeah, we're very excited to be following what you're doing, and I mean, right from the beginning, we've always been incredibly excited about this idea of what's of how this technology just completely changes the economics of data and, and that's in many exciting and good ways. So um, so congratulations on the mainnet launch and I, your token Thank is you. doing very nicely as well I see. So well
1: done. Yeah it's running pretty smoothly like even the the upgrade has been great. So the, the technical foundation of what we have is it's um uh it received a lot of a lot of positive feedback from um people in the space, but also, like, developers and users. So we're very proud of that.
0: Awesome. So thank you, Luca, and also to uh, uh, RMIT experts, Chris Berg and Jason Potts. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes and further research at rmitblockchain.io.